Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Piper. What's up? Hey, Nate. How are you doing, buddy? Oh, fantastic. How are you doing? I'm living the dream every day. Oh, that's a good dream to be living, yeah? It really is, man. And now I get to hang out with you and do this. Let's get into it. Even better. All what right. are we talking about tonight? We got a great night tonight. Great week this week. Great whatever it is, I guess, the episode that we're going to be cutting into. It is Exodus 24, comma, 31 through 34. And, and here's the thing. If you're noticing that there are a lot of missing chapters in this section, well, there are. It's missing Exodus 21, 22, 23, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, whoa, 30. Whoa. So there's a lot of there's a lot of ground this actually covers. Don't feel terribly bad because 25 through 29 is is really going to be repetitive of what you're going to see and what they're covering next week because you have the instructions of the temple and you have the fulfillment of those instructions. So four of those chapters, I I get why they're not there. But some of these other ones, I feel like there's a missed opportunity that we're not going to miss to talk about what's in these cool chapters. That's exactly right, baby. Yeah. Can't wait. So let's dive right into Exodus 21. And if you don't mind, I'll just actually read a few of these verses. This is God's commandments regarding, I, I mean, it's the law. And I should have brought with me tonight some of the law codes I had from other Near Eastern societies so you could see how identical it is. But I didn't, so you just have to kind of take my word for it or look it up yourself. If you look at some of these other ones, Hammurabi or whatnot, you'll see very similar language. But let's get into it. So, if you buy, if thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Uh, if he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she hath borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the door post. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall serve him forever. Yeah, that's that's mm. fantastic, right, Nate? That's weird. <laughs> it, sh- it should seem a little bit weird. Um, but I, 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 I actually like it. I find it kind of interesting. And when we're talking about servitude in the Old Testament, and it might be interesting to note here, it's not like they would take a whole group of people and force them into slavery. It's it's very different from the slavery, the servitude that we're used to more recently in times past. In these cases, they did not have prisons. If you stole and you're brought to a judge and you're found guilty then you become a servant, and that's your sentencing. You're sentenced, it's like a prison, if you will. You're sentenced to serve, but not forever. As it says here, you're going to be serving for a period of six years, and on the seventh, you shall go out free for nothing, meaning you don't have to pay for your slavery. You, you just let go. I mean, you don't have to pay for your release. And it, it, we, if we were to take time to read all of this, you'll see that when they let a slave go, after the six years is complete and in the seventh year they're letting them go, they have to let them go with as much as they can take of your flocks, of your vineyard, of your crops, of everything that you have. You're supposed to give them as much as they can carry and take and set them on their way as best set up as you can so that they can have success after leaving so they don't go back into slavery. So it is meant to be sort of a reformation for for these people who have stolen or whatnot here. 
First, you have to make it right from who you stole from. You're going to be serving them without being paid, and they'll take care of you. They'll take care of your needs, keep you alive. But after the seven years, then they're gonna they're going to pay you for your service, and it's still a lot cheaper than had they had a servant for the whole seven years. But because they saved money on you giving the restitution, and hopefully the restitution is more than what they stole to begin with, then we're setting you back up so that you can go back into society and contribute. So it's it's kind of an interesting system. Think of it more as prison than than necessarily slavery. And there is this end goal in mind to try to get these people reformed back on the street. But why I think this is interesting is take this discussion in context of Jacob and Laban. If you go and and you are married before you become a servant, then you can go out with your wife. But if the master shall give him a wife and she shall bear him sons and daughters, the wife and the children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. He can't go with his wife and his children. So this this almost makes Laban's argument seem a little bit less um what's what's the right way of putting it? Like like a jerk or like he was out of line? And and so, from Jacob's perspective, I don't know. This gets a little bit interesting from a legal perspective. I would love to see this court case had it gone out and how it would have been argued, because from Jacob's perspective, when he goes there, yes, he doesn't have money for a dowry, so he could technically serve himself in as a serve uh, as a slave. And what's the period of time that he's serving for? Just like it says here, it's a seven-year period of time where he can go out free. So it's almost like he's selling himself as a slave. But you can see that from Laban's perspective. Looking from Jacob's perspective, Laban says, you are family, you can't serve me for free, tell me your wage. So it's not that he's serving him as a slave, he is going to be giving him a wage as a hired person, not, not as a slave, not as an indentured servant. So from Jacob's perspective, that's it. And then also Jacob saying, after the seven years are up, I want to take the bride. So so it's not that he takes the bride and has kids during the seven years. It's after when he's liberated. Where this gets tricky is the second bride he has to serve seven more years for, and Jacob gives him Rachel, and, and he has kids through that relationship, through the handmaids, during the time that he's serving that second seven years. So now if you look at this from Laban's perspective, I gave him a wife and he had children. Now those wife and children belong to me and all of the increase, all of the flocks, you can almost see Laban's perspective and how his wheels are turning because I tricked him into this relationship, because I tricked him into this. Technically, these are my kids, my family, and all of his crops are my crops. So I don't know. I I just think kind of going through the laws and seeing that shines some light on some of these discussions that we're having in the Bible. So I I felt that was kind of worth uh, mentioning. Where I think it is super cool is if you love your... Now, now let's let's get this. I'm just going to read this straight out of here. If the servant shall plainly say, I love one, my master, two, my wife, and three, my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him unto the judge, and he shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Think of Christ, who came here on earth, and think of his bride as the church. Think of his offspring as those who hear him who born through baptism, through that covenant, and then think of his master as God. I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I am willing to submit myself as a servant forever to my master, to my bride, and to my children. And he is taken to the post, and he is born through with, the, with nails to the post, as a symbol of his dedication to wanting to serve this family forever. It's amazing. So I, I love how that sets that story and frames it, some of these laws. So I think there's some good things in the law that 
maybe just worth highlighting a little bit. Killer. Let's keep going. Next up, um, let's see. Let's skip into Exodus 23. And and I think this is is there you know it's it's kind of fun to see the fairness that they're trying to do all throughout here. If if for example your ox gets loose and it bores somebody or gores someone with their horn and it causes them to die, if this is the first time that happened and you had no idea it was going to happen, it's not your fault. It's kind of this this crazy animal's fault, and and the animal has to bear the sin of what it did. But if this animal was known to be kind of a brute and going around and and had a tendency to be charging people, and you have this pattern that establishes it, then the liability slides away from the animal and onto the owner. And if the ox gores someone and they die, now the owner is liable. So I like I like how the law is described in careful detail, giving all of these different situations, trying to show what's going on. But in the end here, in 23... I love what he says in verse 7, keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. So when the Lord's saying, keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and the the righteous slay not, you look at it, there's a lot of laws where you say, okay, if, if they do this, then stone them, then put them to death. There's capital punishment all throughout this law. But if there is any question or doubt that that person is, is a righteous person or, or is an innocent person is being accused of something they shouldn't, it says err on the side of letting them go. Because I, the Lord, will not justify the wicked. You know, you might let the wicked go, but in the end, they'll still, re- they'll still meet justice. There's no reason to kill an innocent person trying to be overly... Um, what's the, what's the right way to say this? Overly persistent of of justice that you kill somebody who is righteous, trying to punish whoever did something. If if you're gonna err, err on the side of caution, because in the end, God's gonna make it all right anyways. At least that's I. I tell people all the time. I've watched too many of those shows or seen, listened to too many of those podcasts where innocent people are spending insane amounts of time in prison because of some shady or suspicious policing or legal stuff or whatever it is. And I'm, I'm glad that, uh, I feel like I'm being justified here with my belief, which is I would much rather, I would much rather a guilty person get off than an innocent person have to serve time for something they didn't do. Yeah, and that's and that's the way I read this. You can also read it, and I think maybe maybe it works in both cases. As you say, sometimes they're they're being put in there because of what a wicked person did, right? And when they say here, "Slay not the innocent and the righteous," for I will not justify the wicked. You could look at that as saying the wicked are the ones that are persecuting the righteous knowingly, falsely yep. accusing them or going after them that way. So I, I think it works in both cases. I'm with you. All right. Let's move to the next one, shall we? Please. Okay. Exodus uh, 23, 22 says, and, and this is, so God's prepping them for when they're about to go into the promised land. He says, but if thou shalt indeed obey the, um, his voice and do all that I will speak. So he's talking about the angel that's going to go before him, who's really going to be God himself sitting in this pillar of fire, or this cloud that's going to go before Israel and prepare the way for them. If you follow him and do his will, I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and shall bring thee into the land of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hizzites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Can you say all those again, please? I would rather not. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And you shall serve, skipping down to 25, the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast um, there shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren, 
in thy land, and the number of thy days will I fulfill. I will send my fear before thee, and I will destroy all the people in whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee, and I will send hornets before thee, yeah, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. But little and by little and little will I drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. I love, okay. I love that the Lord is going to be captaining up Israel and going in front of them. And, and we think about this next stage in, in the biblical history, this conquest, and they're going in, and, and we see the destruction and how bloody it is. And, and we look at how can the Lord be commanding these people to go and kill all of these people. And it's, it's pretty dark and it's pretty bloody. But at the same time in here, God is saying that he is going to fight their battles and it's, it's going to be their reputation what he did by laying the foundation with Exodus and the plagues is creating this fear like hornets that's going to go before them that, you know, hornets, they're not going to kill you. But for whatever reason, I think we have an irrational fear of them or, you know, we're, we're like a thousand times their size, but yet we run away from these little guys. I think that's kind of the fear that God has created this reputation of Israel and as Israel's coming into the land because of that reputation, it saves them a lot of the fighting because the people are going to be fleeing from before them. God is warning the people and trying to avoid, I think, a lot of the conflict that we're going to be seeing. Anyone who's willing to listen to the Lord or listen to this fear and flee is going to be spared the, the, the punishments that are coming. You see this too when, when they go and get Balaam the prophet to try to curse Israel, and he looks out at the host, and he's like, yeah, no, you guys are toast. You you, you probably just leave now. It's great. Too bad they didn't listen. Too bad they didn't listen. Okay, let's uh, let's move on, shall we? Please. Talking about the covenant that gets made, Israel accepts the word of the Lord, and, and the Lord has kind of this little ritual that he goes where he takes representatives of all of Israel, brings them before him, and they sacrifice the animals. They don't just sacrifice them, but they collect their blood in these large basins. And then they take these basins of blood and they sprinkle it out on these representatives to represent all Israel. So can you imagine, like, here you are set up to to the sacred ceremony and you just can have blood splattered all over you. It just seems kind of disgusting. And it's got to be the same blood that's being splattered on you as the same blood that's being poured over the altar. So you have this blood being poured on the altar and this blood being splattered all over you. It seems very cultish, very weird, and, and I think hard for, for us to accept. We're so far removed from this butchery. We, we are not used to the idea that we have to go kill what we're going to eat for the next night or week or however long, and, and we don't get our hands dirty in that process very often. These guys, this is part of their existence. And there's something powerful about knowing that the only reason they're alive is because something innocent had to give its life and shed their blood for them to be able to live. And this lesson is being taught over and over. So think about that. What is the symbolism of having that same blood that spilled on them being spilled over the altar? And, um, I don't. I don't want to just throw you on the spot, but I'm going to have you think about that, Nate. Maybe I'll. I'll spit out some ideas. Maybe you can I have give me some, some ideas. ideas. You have some? Yes. Shoot. Well, what does the what does uh? I'll throw this back to you to make sure that I'm not off on this. What does the uh, sacrament table represent? The altar. Okay. And what is placed upon the altar? The body of Christ. Okay. So. For me, I mean, it makes sense that the most direct um, comparison is the thing that the thing that covers your nakedness, or the thing that the blood that covers you, that atones for you, is the same blood that was spilt upon that altar. Yes, I love it. And, and how you, far off am I? No, I absolutely. Yeah, that's it. 
I mean, well, that that's part of it. I want to keep going with this because I think okay. there's even more imagery than that. Let's keep going. But let's go down the road that you're taking us down because I, I think this is perfect. I mean, you have this burial shroud covering the bread and the water, which represents the flesh and the blood of Christ. Okay. Laying on an altar as a sacrifice offering himself. And that same water that represents the blood is not just contained to him under that shroud, but passed out that everyone participates in it. Like you're saying, I, we participate because of the blood that was shed for us and because we're partaking of that life that gave itself up that we can live, we can live as well, that, that covenant. So I, I love where you're going with that. I also wonder if the blood doesn't also represent the blood of our blood, the fact that we are going to give our lives, we are going to sacrifice ourselves, our old selves, Mm. and try to become a new self. And the same blood that we're leaving, we will also lay on the altar in in that um, symbolism of, here, let me sacrifice myself to be what you want me to be. Let me give my life to you, God, and trust that you will raise me up and lengthen my days and give me new life. I love that. Well, and, and I love that it becomes complete through the duality, through the both. The idea that God became man so that man could become God. That on one hand, it can represent God, but on the other hand, it can represent us, and that really they're one and the same. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I love the imagery of that. I think it's pretty I think it's pretty neat. And, and can I throw one more thing out there too? Please do. There is something about that process that is also uncomfortable, right? Yes. The actual physical part of that process. That it's not easy, that it's not um super convenient. Let's just let's just use the word it messy at times, right? Like uh-huh. that there is something that is I, I guess that I, I almost still just like that the, the, it's not a convenient process either, just from hearing it described, right? That there's a lot that goes into it, and, it, and there's that it takes quite a commitment to, you know what I mean? It's like it's it's very easy, and we've talked about this when we were talking about Doctrine and Covenants and, and some of our other little kind of uh, recordings in the past, how it can be kind of casual to take the sacrament each week, right? Yes. That's not a hard process. That's a very, it it can be incredibly casual, right? Even though the weight of that covenant is heavy, um, I guess I like the imagery of this other, you know, this actual covenant because I'm like, oh man, this isn't a, uh, this isn't something you casually show up and do to get blood poured on you that has to then get poured on an altar and all of these other things. I'm like, man, that's, I do at least appreciate the idea that there is a sanctity and a weight that is laying your blood on the line or laying your will on the line or sacrificing your will to God's will, and that it also is a good representation of the sacrifice that Christ also made, that that was very much not an easier, convenient process. Nothing about that was convenient. Yeah. And was messy. And was bloody. It was. And and I think of, you know, the saying, you've got blood on your hands, and, and blood is associated with guilt. Like you've, you know, the blood of thy brothers crying out, like you were guilty that that animal had to die because of you. That, that blood was shed because of you, and you have that blood on you. You share in that guilt. You participate in that knowing that because of you, that's why he died. It makes it very real, gritty. And, and it may be easier to internalize, and maybe it's more difficult today where it becomes such a clean and easy process. Maybe we don't internalize it, or maybe we take it for granted. And maybe they did back then, too, because they're, you know, I don't maybe. know. Maybe. I don't know, man. That seems like it would take some actual commitment, but that's just me. It does. I'm just saying it's, it's sacrament can be, yeah, especially, by the way, with, like, small children. It's like when I'm personally just wrestling one of them throughout the whole meeting and you know what I mean trying to you know wrestle the sacrament tray out of his hands and then hurry and take it myself and then hurry and pass it and then try to keep his hands down you know what I mean like again it's it's easy to to lose focus although again 
what it represents is something that is hard and gritty, like you said, and not clean and probably traumatic and horrifying and, you know, I don't know. Well, and it engages a lot of senses. And in sacrament, I don't know that our senses are engaged quite quite to the same level. I mean, you're feeling the blood getting splattered on you. You're probably feeling the warmth of the blood and, and it smells, you know. And, and the visual of seeing the people around you splattered with blood, yeah. it, it makes it very... Do you think they even saw the animal get killed and then have to have, like, the blood drained into and these drain big it things? And drain it and the basins, Ugh. and then they're taking the basins. And, and the sprinkling is really just sloshing that bucket around Ugh. so it's spilling up over the edges and hitting you in the audience with it, and then they're taking it and pouring it over the altar, and they're sharing that. The That's a, that's a very visceral you know commitment i guess i don't know i i guess that's the only thing i want to add to though i guess is that i i do like at least the idea of hey this is a reminder that that what this does represent is not an easy thing and it's not a convenient thing and and i like i i like the i i, I like the duality of this i mean one obviously the the symbolism of Christ dying for us, and I think it's fair to say Christ came here, his whole role and mission was to die right but let me ask you this question: is our mission any different It's funny you said that because I was just going to bring that up too. One of my favorite lines in in a cake song is as soon as you're born, you start dying. Yeah, theirs is so you might as well have a good time, which is kind of funny. But but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> but I guess the idea is it is interesting. And and by the way, look at so many of the look at so many of the covenants that we make. What what is a fairly common theme in in most of the covenants we make? Death and rebirth, right? Yes. And so, you know, to answer your question. You, that that's our purpose too, right? Yes, is to is to die and be reborn in so many different ways. He sent us all to die, but he gave us hope, and and having having this hope that we can be redeemed, that we can, if we lose our life, we shall find it. I mean, that's the great, and and I love I love how the Old Testament keeps pointing us to this idea, to this imagery that yes, we can find it that things will be complete and whole. And we'll see that even in this section spelled out again when we get to the golden calf, which, which we're, we're headed to soon. Okay. Okay, should I... Wait, is that in this chapter? Uh, not in this chapter, but it's in this week. Okay. okay. And, and, and so um, we're, we're in 24. Okay. Let's see if there's anything here I wanted to hit real quick. I, I do like um, verses 9 and 10. Then went up Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw God. They saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, um, as it were, a paved work of the sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand, and they saw God and did eat and drink. It's not just one person's testimony that you have to rely on. And I find that, you know, Joseph Smith was so relieved when he could share that burden and have the three witnesses and then the 12 witnesses. Was it 12 witnesses? Am I losing my mind? Eight? Eight witnesses. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I mean, you, you freaked me out, too. I was like, uh, I mean, even now I'm still like, we should probably check that before we release this, but I thought it was eight. It, it is. Okay. It is. But if you take eight plus three, it's 11. And plus Joseph. Add, and you add Joseph, and then you're at 12. There we go. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. Anyhow, the, 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 it, he writes about it in his journal, the relief he felt knowing that he could share it. And the thing is that God is not going to put that kind of burden on one person that you just have to trust this. He says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And the idea that he has testified to multiple people to help to help his children to believe to help build that faith it's not just in one but you establish this strong foundation upon which you can build so i 
I kind of liked that they threw that in there and, and talked about these other people receiving that witness too as they're establishing this nation. Cool. Let's keep going. Let's do it. Um, let's move. Let's, let's skip a little bit. So 25 um, through, here's here's the deal. 25 through 2930, you're going to be talking about the, the temple and God commanding them to build the temple. And I kind of wish they would have included that in this week's discussion, but it's been pushed off to the next week because, so we'll skip this, but we'll get to the story of the, the golden calf. But why I say that, hmm, do I, do I preface it or conclude with it? No, let's go. Let's, um, why I say that is, you have this story where where these four chapters are going to outline every little detail about the tabernacle, how many tachets you have, what material it should be made of, um, the length and the breadth thereof. And it's kind of a hard read to read once you're used to all of these fun stories and the Exodus and Genesis and all these crazy things that are happening. And then you get here and there's only so many length and breadth thereof you can read before you're like falling asleep. Okay. And, you, and you don't even have wild, crazy names to like somewhat entertain you like the begatting lines, right? It's just cubits. But I think the, the, the value here is having these four chapters lining out a plan into such great specific detail. And then after the story of the golden calf, going back to the execution of the plan in great specific detail, I think it, it makes kind of this sandwich. You, you have the, the, the plan, this weird story of the golden calf, and then the execution of the plan. Why would they interrupt the story of building the temple to tell this story about the golden calf? Hmm. And so that's why I think really all of these chapters should go together in one kind of unit. So I, <coughs> I, I say that to kind of give us some context to the story of the calf, and then I'll finish up the story with why I think that's important. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about these details next week's lesson when we talk about the temple and the importance of this exactness and, and, and this measurement. Okay. So going into the calf, um, they say, make us gods, but the word gods is Elohim. And so really they're saying, make us an image of God. And, and, and the reason they're saying this, Moses has been up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights you remember Moses was 40 before he wanders into Jethro's camp, and then he's 40 before he wanders back to get Israel out. This guy is somewhere after his 80s, and, and he's wandered into this mountain to talk to God, and no one's seen him for 40 days. They're starting to wonder if they're ever going to see him again. Is he going to come back? And so they come to Aaron, and they ask him to, to make them this golden image, and Part of the key to this is it's not just any golden image. A calf was a symbol of God. And in fact, in some of the scriptures, when they talk about the God of Jacob or the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac, in the Hebrew, it's actually the bull of Jacob, the bull of Abraham, the bull of Isaac. And so this bull is being used as a symbol of God. So they're not making just any kind of image to, to any false gods, and they refer to this God as Elohim. They refer to this God as Jehovah. They say, make us an image so that we can worship Jehovah. And this is the, the animal, the totem symbol, the, the representation of him. And we see this. It's going to play a place throughout Israel history later on when they go and build temples in, in Israel, north of Jerusalem. They're going to build calves there as well. Uh, when we talk about the the baptismal font being placed on the bull's shoulders. There's something still resonant there about building this, this calf. But they build this calf, and when Moses comes back down, so, so Aaron commands that they take all of their jewelry, they take all the jewelry, he melts it down, he makes it. Moses comes back, he's pretty upset about what happens, and he takes the golden calf melts it down, grinds it into a powder, then puts it in the water and makes them all eat it. And, and then, so get this, after he sees that, uh, verse 25 in chapter 32, and when Moses saw that the people were naked, 
for Aaron had made them naked unto the shame of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto them, unto him. And, and, and so you've got this story. Let me try to let me try to give you a thousand foot view of this. First, you have this plan that's laid out, and then you have these people here, and as soon as God departs, they go and have this calf or whatever, and when God comes back, and when I say God departs, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Moses as an image or a symbol of God, leaving into the mountain. When he returns, what happens? He's, they're having him eat this. I want you to think of this as Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit. They're eating uh, is a symbol of the sin that they had done, the, the the choice that they had made that was poor. And immediately after, how do they find themselves? Moses finds them, the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked. And, and then afterwards, Moses tries to atone for them. So let's, let's see what Moses says. Verse 31, and Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. If you have a problem with them, take it out on me. Forgive them. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of the book. Therefore now go and lead this people to the place which I have spoken unto thee. So you have you have a people that sin, they're partaking, they're, they're eating of this sin, they're found naked, and then you have Moses trying to cover their nakedness and stepping in the role of a savior. And then following the story comes the execution of the plan. So first you have the laying out of the instructions on how to build a temple. Then you have this partaking of the fruit, this nakedness, this atonement theme motive and then you have the execution of the plan perfectly done to the detail this obedience that's learned afterwards and central to the whole story is the idea of a temple that's where restitution is going to happen that's where we're going to be able to fulfill it and carry it out and make amends for the mistakes that we have made and return back to the presence of god can i throw another uh another connection in here please do because I think that it's something that's it's kind of important that you brought up is that the bull represents God to them, right? And we've kind of talked about this all year about the the correct way or the easy way, right? Yes. And we've talked we've talked a few times about the idea that even sometimes with the best of intentions, um, we make our own shortcuts, but that those aren't the right shortcuts. But I think that uh, in this. In this specific example, you could almost also relate this to Christ coming and then the apostasy and then him coming back again, right? Where you have Christ come, correctly set up his church with prophets and apostles. He leaves the the people in an effort to still um, worship God in their own way, build basically this golden calf and you know basically the idea is they're still trying to do the right thing but it's not the correct way right it's not the right way and that then when Christ comes back again he basically destroys the the golden calf and restores and like you just said too specifically with the imagery of the temple but that then the plan is restored, and what is the central part of the restoration of even God's church on the earth? The, the temple, prophet, or the well, well, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, the structure of the church, but like you said, temple ordinances, temple, right? And so, I guess, I guess this is even like a beautiful kind of just imagery of even Christ coming, leaving things kind of going amok maybe with some good intentions, but then Christ coming back again to cover nakedness, to restore, and then the the most important part of that restoration is the, the covenants we can then start making again in the temple. 
Maybe that's the coolest thing I've. I, I love that. The, the you know I and and I guess that's why I said prophet is as you were saying this my mind's hanging up on you know Moses departing for, as as Christ coming and establishing his church and then as he leaves you, you would hope that some semblance of order stays there for a while but eventually the people get led astray or they go into that darkness that apostasy and and set up this 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 false form of worship and you look at you know, how, how the church has changed over time or praying to things that are not God. I mean, very literally, they're creating this calf and praying to it and having that be in front of them instead of God. And God has to come back and say, no, you don't need something between you and me and that, that restoration. Man, I love that. Well, and, and and even maybe specifically, too, and again, not to, you know, I, I know we try not to necessarily be super critical of other religions and things like that. But it is interesting when you go and look at old Catholicism symbolisms and things, right? I mean, you, you have golden crosses with Christ hanging on them. Like you you kind of have the golden calf, right? And, and, and so much a part of, of various other religions worship is, is like physical objects, right? Or, or, you know what I mean? Or, or kind of big elaborate, you know, things adorned with gold and, and jewelry and things like that. You know what I mean? It's like you almost still have, yes, it is the correct symbol. Yes, that is, Christ is who we worship. But like you just said, we're instructed very clearly, even at least in the Ten Commandments, right? That it's like, we don't do that with graven Im- images, right? We don't do that with with golden you know, calves, whatever, whatever that is, you know? So it's funny because even the, even a lot of other religions quite literally have made symbolisms of God out of gold and various things and, and really do kind of bow at the feet or kiss the feet or, or worship these things. Right. And, and so I guess that even is maybe just another kind of part of that connection. Yeah. And, and there's a verse here. Let's see if I if I find it super quick, because I don't I don't want to pause too much on this. Verse eight in chapter thirty two, and they turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and and how quick is it that we start looking for those substitutes? I mean, you see how quick it was that they started substituting something else for that God, and and you know, going taking this maybe full circle with what you were saying, this quest for the shortcut. If going to God is so difficult, trying to find him or whatever, creating a shortcut and bringing him to you, creating a God that you now have, you don't have to go find him. You don't have to climb that mountain. You don't have to change your life and go through all of this because now you can just bring God to you. You have him. You're there. You've created your own restoration. Isn't that much easier? Yeah, it is. It is, and, and again, tying back into this story, you know, when Moses is basically like, hey, God God wants us all to be in his presence, uh-huh. right? God, That's what God is wanting. Yeah, I mean, he's up on top of that mountain. Yeah, that's a hard thing to get up. Yeah, that's going to take some effort, and that also is going to take living a law and being, you know, cleansed and that whole thing. And everybody else's response again was, uh, "It's okay, Moses. You can do that. And, and, <laughs> you can take care of that for us. How about how about how about you go do that hard stuff for us?" And fear. They use that word fear, right? The fear of God. But they were trembling because the how intimidating it was. And sometimes I think we're afraid to come face to face with some of the things that we need to deal with in our life. And out of fear, we don't address those. Or out of fear, we don't want to change. Instead, we're going to just create something that maybe is a little less scary that we can deal with, we can cope with, and we can communicate with that makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. Here, have some of this fruit. It'll give you, you'll be, you'll be just like God without having to go through the that process. fearsome process. That's exactly right. Awesome. Let's keep going. Um, and it just, taking that back as how I was looking at that, I, I'm so glad you took us down this route, but I was looking at it almost like a pre-mortal life 
with with the oh, plan being laid out, right? The temple saying, this is how we're going to do it. This is what it's going to look like. This is the plan. And we have it all out in the details. And then we come here on earth to execute the plan. And inevitably, we partake of the fruit and find ourselves naked and saying, now what, right? And then we get covered and then we learn. And then when we die... Because there's death that happens here when when the Levites choose Moses aside, they go through and start slaying some of the people that had made the bad choices. I mean, death is part of this story. And and then we get to the point where we can execute on that plan. And and the whole thing, the the whole purpose of the plan also includes that weakness in the middle. You don't have the temple story without having that partaking of the fruit and that nakedness because it was part of the plan at the beginning. This idea that we still can be saved. Don't give up. Don't don't figure out, you know what, I'm, I'm imperfect and this was a perfect plan. No, that imperfection was always part of the plan, even in this story. And God still has a way pr- programmed to redeem you and make you part of that strong finish. There's there's something incredibly hopeful about that, in my opinion. I agree. Um, I, I love that so much, and and it's funny because when you talk about life and death, it's like, man, those are, those actually are two very heavy subjects, right? Those mm-hmm. are two hard things, life and death. But the idea is, and we talked about this a lot last week in, in the Easter um, episode, that the hope is that there is something after, right? And when you look at all of just throughout the scriptures, throughout your day-to-day life, just the process of death and rebirth, you know, birth, death, rebirth, there is something that is so beautiful about that reoccurring theme, about the potential to always put away something, things that you might not even behaviors that you don't like of you about yourself. You know what I mean? Things even of yourself that you're just like, man, I really wish I could change. Yes, you can. That's the whole point of all of this, right? The whole point of all of this is, is that it's not a hopeless cause that every bit of this, and I'm glad that you, you brought it out to a thousand feet. I'm glad you brought this out to, you know, a hundred thousand feet. I'm glad you brought out the eternal part of this, right? Which is, which is, messing up then killing that person knowing that there will be a rebirth of that person i mean even just the idea of like the sun going down and the sun coming back up right yes like there's just something it's like it's no wonder celebrating a new year's is such a part of every culture right there's just that idea of death and rebirth with just another shot again right and and I just love that you can look at that as an hour to hour, day to day, month to month, birthday to birthday, whatever that is, right? All the way out to the eternal perspective, which is you can do it, really, right? Just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to kill those things that you don't like because that's part of it. Kill those things and then be reborn as something better ready to learn from it and ready to continue to, you know, just to, to progress and, and, you know, eventually hopefully be perfected. And symbolically, it kind of is a bloody process as you're killing part of those things in your life that you don't like, you know. Well, it's hard for me. Mm-hmm. You, you are you are bleeding a bit. You are sacrificing. You are giving putting part of you on that altar to try to make yourself a better person. And, and, and I love... We're going to talk about this next week when we start talking about the temple and different levels of holiness, that, that you're not supposed to be this perfect all the time. The, the, the behavior in the Holy of Holies is still going to be different from the holy place or the courtyard of the, the priest or the Gentiles or you know Israel. There's, there is different, different gradients, and that's okay. You're not supposed to be just like this all the time, all out. There, there are levels. It's okay that that we behave and we'll, we'll talk about that all next week. Sorry. I'm no, it's great. I'm, I'm cause I'm I was going to ask you what we were talking about next week anyways, but you beat me to it. Well, let me, let me, let me put one last point on this. Cause, um, please, please do. And, and I, and I was all ready to wrap up and sorry. No, let's put one final point on this. It's great. I, when, when you were talking about the, the, 
the multitude of, of signs that we get about death and resurrection that just took my mind back again. You know, at first you have Moses who's talking with God, but that's not good enough. I don't want just one person that everyone has to trust. Bring everyone here and let them watch Moses talking to God. And that's still not good enough. I need, I need Joshua here. I need Aaron here. I need 70 elders. And they'll see me personally. So when we start talking about death and resurrection, it's not just one person, Jesus Christ, that we have to take his word for and believe. That he is going to be sharing these witnesses in these stories through all of these different people. And, and you see it in the whole world around us when the sun goes down at night and it's symbolizing this death and this darkness, and yet inevitably the next day it rises again. When the seasons change and you watch the leaves die and the trees go dormant and this death take over the world, and yet in the spring life comes back. That's so neat to me that we don't have to rely just on the word of one man we didn't know that well that we can see it in everything testifying that this is the case. And how much more comforting is that to us to, to know that it's a whole chorus of testimonies that are singing to us rather than one vague point that we're trying to focus on. Amen, brother. Amen. And the more we see it happen, the more the more we just become comfortable with the idea, right? The more we just accept it and, and we don't even question it. And, and the more we look for it, the more we recognize it. You know, we, when we start to see what we're looking for and we focus on it, it starts to stick out. You know, you, you see it when you buy a car and then you start to see that car everywhere because yeah, totally. now you're kind of focusing yeah, totally on it. Yeah, totally it was. Yeah, it makes it easier for us to see it and recognize it all over in the life around us and in the stories and in the scriptures. And it just, it's comforting. Fantastic. Anything else we need to get to this week? No, sir. Let's talk about next week. Okay. Next week is the construction of the temple. We'll talk about the details of the temple and, and kind of how I led in there. We're going to talk about different degrees of holiness. Is it okay that we're not always our Sunday best throughout the week? We'll have that discussion next week. Fantastic. Um, again, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Please send questions and comments to hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Hi. We really appreciate... Um, all of the feedback we get. We appreciate you guys listening and until next week. See ya. See ya.